Welcome to the mikvah.org podcast. The mikvah organization has been dedicated to the education and resources for Jewish family life since 1975-5735. You can support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. Thank you for your support and enjoy today's recording. Today we will hear from Rabbi Yisrael Shurak, whose qualifications include an MSW, BSW, a BA, and two smicha programs. He has over 20 years of experience working in social services with children, teens, and families from Canada, the U.S., England, Australia, and Israel. He has worked in a variety of positions in community agencies, schools, and shuls. He currently has a private practice and is the creator of the Frontline Notebook weekly podcast. We hope you enjoy the episode, and we invite you to sponsor an upcoming episode in honor of a loved one. Please reach out to podcast at mikvah.org. Okay, so we're going to get started. I want to thank uh, Chabad of the Lev and Rabbi Schmidt and Rabbi Farrow for inviting me to speak, especially on a topic which I absolutely love to talk about, which is marriage and Shalom bias. So the order of tonight's going to be, I'm going to give a definition of marriage, and then I'm going to talk about the Ten Commandments, ten principles that I think are really important for every couple to know. And then I'll give a little summary in one line that's hopefully a takeaway of each of the commandments. So we'll start with the definition. I think it's really important that anytime you discuss any topic, that you have a very clear definition of what you're talking about. Sure. If you don't have a definition of what you're talking about, that means it lacks clarity. So then if I don't know what you're talking about, and you don't know what I'm talking about, then how can we have a back and forth discussion? So you have to have a definition. Most people, if you ask them, what is marriage? They'll say something like shared life experiences. It means loving each other. It means creating a family. But if someone of marriageable age comes to that person and says, what is marriage? I'm getting married in a week. Tell me, what is marriage? Most people don't have a succinct answer they can tell them. And so one of the biggest mistakes that I think that we're making today is we're setting couples up for failure. Because a couple gets engaged and they think that marriage is going to be all unicorns and lollipops and roses. And the idea of that you're marrying your bishert, your soulmate, is wonderful, but they don't have the definition behind it to really comprehend what they're getting into. So I'll share with you what my definition of marriage is. Marriage is a commitment to a partnership, to journey through life, to achieve the mission that God has set before you. Again, marriage is a commitment to a partnership, to journey through life, to achieve the mission that God has set before you. Now, I use very specific words, terms, in that definition. Commitment, partnership, journey, and mission. Now, everyone in this room has been in some sort of partnership, whether it's a business partnership, doing a project in school together, maybe you partner with someone for the Beit Knesset to do a chassid project, some sort of partnership where you worked with someone else. And what binds that partnership together is a shared interest, a shared goal. We want to accomplish something together. What happens when the terms of engagement change for that partnership? We've also all, I'm sure, I'm betting on the fact that we've all been involved in a partnership where at some point we have to step away and say, you know what, I can't be a part of this anymore. This person's not pulling their weight or the ideals have changed and I can't be a part of this partnership. Marriage is different because you have the commitment there that says no matter what happens in this partnership, I'm committed to you. Now, you know it's going to be difficult because we said it's your journeying through life together. Who's going to say that a journey through life is easy peasy? It doesn't happen that way. Especially when the journey through life is to achieve the mission that God has given each and every one of us. It could take a long time, many, many years, till a person figure out, figures out 
Why was I placed here on this earth? What am I supposed to contribute to this world? So now if we look at the definition altogether, the commitment to a partnership with this person who completes us, to journey through life, which has its ups and downs, to achieve a mission that's set before me. So now we have a definition, and now we can go through the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one is create a shared reality. What does that mean? So as soon as a person is old enough to start thinking about marriage, what is my married life going to be like? We all have images in our mind that come up. What my house should look like, what Shabbos, Shabbos is going to look like in my house, my Shabbos table, what is the vacation going to look like, what is my work-life balance going to look like, what is it going to look like for me to go out and steal with my friends. We have these images in our life, and that leads to expectations. But our spouse also has expectations. So what happens when our expectations are not synthesized? So people end up confused and frustrated and hurt. And I'll give you an example. So let's say I didn't have a discussion about my expectations with my spouse, and we're married, and we invite guests over for Shabbos. And in my mind, there's no end. The guests will leave when the guests are ready to leave, and we're going to forbring, and we're going to sing songs, and we're going to have a wonderful time. And in my wife's mind, she's thinking to herself, okay, you know, the meal will wrap up around 10.30, we'll bench, and everyone's going to leave around 11 o'clock, and Yisrael and I will have a tea, and we'll sit down, and we'll discuss our week, just the two of us, and we'll have some alone time. But there was no discussion. So my wife's in the kitchen, and she's getting to re- ready to bring out the dessert, and I launch into a subject that she knows she's heard before is going to take me 30 minutes to discuss. And she's thinking, why would he do that? Why would he start that at 10.30? The guest is supposed to leave at 11. We never had that discussion. So because we didn't discuss our expectations, we don't have, we haven't created a shared reality. So how do you go about doing that? One of the ways to do that, and I can't emphasize this enough, I tell every single couple that I work with that from the week of Sheva Brachas until 120 years, they should be married. They should have a family meeting every single week. No, a family meeting. A meeting where the husband and wife get together, they sit down, they have a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, and they say, how is our marriage going? How was I as a husband this week? How was I as a, as a wife this week? What did I do really well that you liked? What could I maybe improve on? What could change? So sometimes a couple say to me, that sounds so businesslike. I should sit down with the person that's the other half of my soul and have a conversation. Like, shouldn't we just know? And if you're married for like 20 years, 25 years, like surely by then it should be automatic. It should be very obvious. Like you shouldn't have to speak to each other. And that's wrong. That's nonsense. You should speak to each other. There's a seder to everything in Judaism. We know it says in Shulchan Aruch that the way you put on your shoes, you put on your right shoe, your left shoe, you tie your left shoe, you tie your right shoe. There's a seder. There's an organized manner to everything. So why would we think that marriage would be any different? So a couple that doesn't discuss their expectations, that get down to the nitty-gritty, every single detail, ends up frustrated and not creating a shared reality. Even to the extent of, for instance, let's say, I say to my wife, can you go to the supermarket? Can you go to Yeish? Can you buy apples? And by the way, only buy if it's a good price. What's a good price to me and a good price to my wife could be very different. So she goes and buys apples. She comes back. I say, how much did she spend? I spent uh, 16 shekels for apples. 16 shekels for apples. What do you, you think we're made of money? It's not fiscally responsible. And we get into a whole conversation of like we're just bleeding money out of our account. She says, but you said to get it if it's a good price. And I'm thinking, I did say to get it if it's a good price. 1590 is not a good price. But we never sat down to discuss it. So couples should have a family meeting every single week. I say family because the truth is, once you have children, you can include them in the meeting sometimes. Not appropriate all the time because the relationship, the shalom bias, influences parenting more than anything else in the world. More than anything else. What a kid see, what they experience in the home, that influences how they're going to grow up in a healthy way. So you have a family meeting every week 
and you discuss every detail. The longer you're married, that's fine. So, okay, now we don't have to discuss how much apples cost. But anytime we're going to have a new experience, like we just made Aliyah, we moved to a new country. What's Aliyah going to look like? What's going to look like living in Ramat Beit Shemesh Aleph? If I didn't have these discussions with my wife, then we're not going to have a shared reality. Each of us is going to end up frustrated and hurt, which usually ultimately manifests in anger. So commandment number one is create a shared reality by being open about your expectations. Commandment number two, don't just be a spouse, be a best friend. Now you might have read or you might have heard other counselors, other therapists say that really your spouse should be your spouse and your best friend should be your best friend and they should be separate. And that's wrong. Your spouse absolutely should be your best friend. But you know, sometimes my wife and I, we have an inside joke. And I'll say to her, you're my best friend, but not to cheapen our relationship. So what does that mean, not to cheapen our relationship? So then first we have to understand what does it mean to be a friend? What is friendship? And what is marriage? What is the role of a friend? And what is the role of a spouse? So the role of a friend is very clear. To support and cheerlead throughout the duration of the friendship. Friends remind us how special we are and how lucky the world is to have us. That is what a friend does. A spouse is very different. A spouse to support and cheerlead, yes, but also to help us cultivate the best version of ourselves. I like to say that a spouse is there to help us step into ourselves. And you can't do that unless you're opening to giving feedback that maybe no one else has told you because they didn't care enough. Not because they didn't have the chutzpah or the audacity, but the truth is most people don't care enough to say, hey, you know what, let me tell this about your, you, about you, so you can become a better version of yourself. And I'll give you a clear example. Let's say I go for a job interview, and I'm not married, and I'm single, and I find out I don't get the job. So I call up a good friend of mine, and I say, hey, I went to that interview today I was telling you about, and I didn't get the job. So like, what's a normal response? What would he say? That's crazy. I heard that company's not that even good anyway. You're so much better than them. You're going to find a better job. You should be glad you didn't get that job. These are all things that a good friend would say. You're going to find something way better. I'm, I'm glad you didn't get that job. What does a spouse say? So in the moment, obviously, the spouse should support and comfort. But after the, the dust has settled a little bit, what would my wife say to me? She might say, you know, Yisrael, you didn't really prepare for the interview. And sometimes when you speak, you mumble a little bit. And I wonder if maybe you didn't get your message across clearly. And I'd be happy to practice with you. And the other thing, Yisrael, you know, you left like a half hour before the job interview was supposed to start. It takes 40 minutes to get there. So you probably got there late. And I'm guessing that showed them that maybe you didn't think that that job was so important for you. So I really think, you know, I could help you. I can set an alarm. I, I can come with you. But we really need to make sure that you get there earlier. So there's a huge difference in the investment. Friendships, there's an ebb and flow to friendships, right? That they get closer and they get further apart. I mean, most people, if you have one good friend for, for more than 20, 30 years, you're lucky. But no one can convince me that you've had that same relationship with that friend the entire time. Sometimes it depends on geogra geographic location. Sometimes life gets in the way of being able to be close. A spouse isn't that way. No matter what, the spouse is close to you and helps push you to become the person that you want to be. So commandment number two is don't just be a spouse, be a best friend. Commandment number three is learn to love what your spouse loves. What does that mean? So a husband and wife are obviously two different people. And that means they might have different interests. Maybe I love hiking and I love cooking and baking and my life, wife loves going to the museum and, uh, and she likes listening to music. 
And maybe I don't like listening to music. Maybe she doesn't like going hiking. Maybe for her, going hiking is a waste of time. So I was speaking to someone not long ago, and they said to me, so I found the perfect solution. He said to me, you know how my wife loves hiking? So I said, yes. He said, and you know how I hate hiking? Yes. So what I did was I told her, you know that really good friend of yours? Go hiking every week. And every week she goes hiking. It's her favorite thing. She goes hiking with her friend for three, four hours, and I'm at home. And I sit, I listen to a sheer, a music, whatever it is, and I, I do my own thing. And it's like the perfect solution. And I thought to myself, how sad is that? Your wife likes hiking as her favorite activity in the world. And you don't want to be a part of that. You don't want to share in that. You don't want to be a part of that experience and learn to love what your spouse loves. When you learn to love what your spouse loves, it confirms your dedication to that person. Now, you have to know your limit and play within it. So it doesn't mean that if you go hiking with your spouse and you don't really like hiking, that a few days later, your wife should say to you, by the way, you want to go hiking again? It was so much fun. But it means once a month, you can go hiking and do something that you, know, you don't naturally have an interest to. Like I said, it confirms your dedication to the other person. It also, that's how you learn to be a best friend. Like a lot of times with best friends, friends of our own gender, we first become friends with them because we had a shared interest. You met them at a chug, arts and crafts, or we both liked football, we both liked something, and a discussion came about and we became friends. With a spouse, you know, you get married, there's only so much you know about the other person. And when you decide to like something that you don't have a natural inclination for, well, the bond that you create is so much stronger than a friendship you have with someone that you already like something, you have something in common. So therefore, you can learn to love what your spouse loves. I actually recently also, I heard a conversation between a friend of mine and his son. And they were talking about boxing. And I was really surprised because my friend, his son's like 16, and he was talking in such detail, this boxer and how long the rounds are and how many rounds there are, and like details I had no idea. And so afterwards, I went over to him, I said, you know, I, was, I had no idea you like boxing. You saw, I like boxing. I don't like boxing at all. What I like is my son, and I want to have a relationship with him. And I see he loves boxing. Okay, fine, so I think boxing is a great sport. So what? I could have a conversation with him, he could do all the talking, which shows I'm not really interested. Or in my free time, I looked up about boxing, and I learned a little bit more. So I don't just say, why do you box? That's silly. It's not fun to be involved in boxing. I could have an intellectual discussion with him about a topic that he loves. And he said, you know what? I've learned more about it. I respect the sport more. I might not be a boxing fan, but I'm learning to love what my son loves. And that's how you create a real relationship. So number three was learning to love what your spouse loves. Commandment number four is learn to be selfless, but not less of yourself. So a lot of people think, or sometimes it happens without even realizing it, that you kind of become like one person. And so in particular, this happens for men, that if men put themselves out there a little bit, or, and I'm speaking in generality, so afterwards you don't have to come up to me and say, that's not me, I'm different, that's fine. I'm speaking in general terms. For men, if they give a little, they feel like they give a lot. So if I give a little, give a little of myself, it's like I'm becoming a doormat, I have to say everything, do everything my wife says, and sometimes men will make jokes with each other like, do you have to ask the boss first before you can say yes to going out? It's a joke, but there's some truth to it. And that's why you know, jokes are only funny because there's some sort of remise, some sort of hint of truth in it. For women, it becomes, more, it becomes much more natural to be very, very giving. But what happens for wives often is all of a sudden they turn around, and I, and I see this when I work with couples, they say, I've been married 10 years, I don't know who I am anymore. Like everything I have, I've given to my husband and my kids. And they feel like they don't have any hobbies, they don't have anything that they do for themselves because they're running around all day taking care of the family. So it's very important. 
you don't lose yourself in the marriage. In fact, there's a very famous poem, maybe you heard about it, from Rabbi Menachem of Kotsk, that says, if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, then I am not I and you are not you. But if I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, then I am I and you are you. And it's beautiful, because really what it's basically saying is, if my whole self-identity is based on who my spouse is, then I don't really have any identity at all. And if my spouse's identity is based on who I am, then she doesn't really have an identity. So what do you do? So we all have things that we like to do. We all have things that we like to do. And, and so we have to synthesize that. We also have to recognize that as our lives get busier, we have less time to engage in the things that we like. And so a few weeks ago, a close friend of mine, he made a bar mitzvah and he had a kiddush. And so I, not only did I go to the bar mitzvah and I went to the kiddush, but afterwards there was a febrengen in his house and I stayed until, the, until after Shabbos with my wife's permission. But I can't tell you the last time I went to a febrengen in someone's house and I stayed till Shabbos was over. And in the middle of it, as we're speaking and saying time and talking, I just sat for a moment and I said, you know what? I'm going to soak this in. Like, this is so enjoyable right now. This is so amazing right now. It's not something I get to do. Not because I'm not allowed to do it, but I have responsibilities in life. I have a wife, I have kids, I have a job. Different, things are different. But I'm really going to soak this in and let it help me be my authentic self. Because it's important that you're you. Because if you don't feel like you, then you can't give to other people. So it's really important also that when you decide to be selfless or your spouse decides to be selfless, that you thank them. A little thank you goes a very long way. And people forget, you know, when someone is selfless so that their wife can reach their goals or more often than not, the wife is selfless so the husband can reach his goals, right? And you don't say thank you, then the person thinks, what am I doing this for? So it's twofold. Number one, remember to say thank you when your spouse is choosing to be selfless. The other thing is, you have to find self, uh, time for yourself. You have to fi- find time to be your authentic self. I actually have another workshop called The Authentic Me that I do with people because if you don't know and you've lost who you are, then it's very important that you take some time to figure that out and you do activities, you engage in things that makes you feel like you're you. When you feel like you're you, you have more energy to give to others. When you start to not feel like yourself, that's when people start to experience burnout. And once you're burnt out, you actually also, you, you get frustrated a lot quicker, you get upset a lot quicker, and you get angry a lot quicker. So commandment number four was, learn to be selfless, but not less of yourself. One of the ways, by the way, to do that is learning to love what your spouse loves, right? Because if you do things separately all the time, but you have no time for it, then each person is spending very little time doing what they love. But if I learn to love what my spouse loves, and my spouse learns to love what I love, well, then we're doing things for both of us continually, and we're also building that bond, like I said about the commitment to a partnership. Commandment number five, don't just listen, but hear. So it's actually two different skills, listening and hearing. So earlier today, I was in Olpan, and I was speaking to someone, and uh, all of a sudden, someone else started another conversation. And maybe you've experienced this before, I'm sure you have, where you're speaking to someone, and then another conversation is happening nearby, and you can tell that they're now trying to listen to both conversations, and whether it's a matter of the other person speaking out something of interest, or maybe they're more important, I don't know why, but I'm sure you've all experienced that. You're speaking to someone, and you can see their eyes kind of darting, and they're really trying to listen to two conversations at once, which really only means one thing, they haven't heard either. So they left without having any idea what either person was talking about. Or for instance, if this was a really, really big room, and we had like 400 people here, then what, what might I say in the beginning? I might say, can you hear me in the back? Why would I say, can you hear me in the back? I don't say, are you listening in the back? The assumption is that anyone that came here tonight wants to listen, right? That's why you came. 
But the question is, can you hear? And if you can't hear, then you can't digest. That means it hasn't become a part of you. So there's a difference between listening and hearing. Another example would be like at a Febrengen, a Hasidic Febrengen, you know, there's some, there's some people who are talking, or there's one pe- person speaking about a concept that everyone is trying to relate to themselves, and then you sing a niggin, you sing some songs. What is the point of singing the songs? Some people mistakenly think that the point of singing the songs, and these are the people that were listening, so that they know what to say afterwards. Like, this is my retort, this is my question, this is what I'm going to say. That means you were listening. The people that were hearing what was being said during the songs, they're thinking about it. They're having it go into themselves. That's the whole point of a Ferengen. It should become a part of you. So when your spouse is speaking to you, you don't just want to listen. You want to hear what they have to say. So one of the ways to do that is to practice reframing to them and asking and clarifying and saying something like, what I think you're telling me is, or if I understand correctly what you're trying to say, nothing feels better when the person that you're speaking to can really understand and articulate back to you what it is that they mean. Right? It's an important skill, especially, I would say, for men to learn, because men interrupt a lot, and men want to solve things a lot. And that's another really important point, is that you can sometimes just hear, and you don't have to say anything. For instance, if I'm having a, a, a talk with my wife, and she says something to me that's very emotional or very deep, I don't have to have an answer. I could just say something like, wow, I don't even know what to say. I'm so glad you shared that with me. Or I could say something like, I don't have an answer right now. I have to think about that. And that's the truth. But sometimes we feel like we're compelled because if there's a lull in the conversation, we don't know what to say and it has to be busy, so we have to say something. But again, there's a difference between listening and hearing. So that's commandment number five. Commandment number six is that it's not what you say, but it's also how you say it. So there's two two types of communication. There's communication that cultivates connection, and there's communication that hurts connection. And what is the difference? So at some point in a marriage, and, and as long as people are married, they're going to experience both. Right? No one can tell me that they, they never experience being hurt, and they've only ever experienced positive connection. Anyone that tells me that, it means to me that their marriage is quite surface level and not very deep. Because if you're willing to help the other person step into themselves, that means you're at some point going to have to say something that might hurt them. The question is, how do you say it? It's not only what you say, it's how you say it. So there's the speaker and there's the receiver. So the speaker has to say things in a way that's kind and compassionate. So there's a difference between feedback and criticism. Criticism is all about what you did wrong and what, how you should change. So I'll give you an example. Let's say that I'm late. I'm tardy a lot of the time and I'm not careful about coming home. So I come home and I'm late again. And my wife says to me, Yisrael, you don't care about anyone. You're so selfish. You're always late. It's ridiculous, you're so self-centered, and you cause me to be late again. So is that going to motivate me to change? Chances are I'm gonna shut down, or maybe I'm gonna say something, you think I'm selfish, I'll tell you who's selfish, and now I'm gonna bring up a topic that like, is done, not even relevant to the situation, but I feel because I was hurt that I'm gonna say something else. Or maybe I don't even say anything, I just think to myself, this is what I came home for, like, you can't tell me nicely, like, you want me to not be late, and I come home, and this is how you speak to me. But then there's another way, because if I respond and I say, well, you, you, you never have dinner ready, or why should I come home in time, or I sent you a text, you should have received it, then it becomes an argument. And where does it go? It doesn't go anywhere, right? So yes, it would have been better had my wife given feedback. What is feedback? Feedback is filled with I statements. You know, Yisrael, I would really appreciate if you came home in time. It makes me really upset. It makes me feel like I'm not worth anything to you when you're not careful about what I need to do with my time. 
it would mean a lot to me if you came home earlier. So now the, the reason to change is dependent on the relationship. I think it's fair to say that every single person that's married wants their spouse to feel good. No one's married, hopefully, and think to themselves, like, I want to make my spouse upset. People at their core do their best in their marriage. People want the other person to be happy. So when the person says, this is what I would like, this is what I need, and this would make me feel good, what I hear is, wow, I've been doing something that's hurting my wife. I've been doing something that doesn't make my wife feel good. Like, why would I do that? Now, it could be that I've been chronically late for the first 25 years of life before I got married. So that's a hard thing to change. But I could say something like, you know what, I I really want to try to change. That's more likely to happen if she speaks to me kindly and with compassion. Now, let's say that she doesn't, though. For argument's sake, let's say I come home and my my wife just lets me have it. And she says, you're always late, you're self-centered, you're selfish, it's ridiculous. So I have the option of, you know, saying something back to her that's unkind. Or I could recognize the truth in the content of what she said. Now, that takes courage and vulnerability to stop and say to yourself, what was just said is true, but I don't like how it was said. So my response could be, sometimes I'm not careful enough with my time, and I can see that it really bothers you. I'm sorry. So what do you think happens from that? It completely diffuses the situation. Now, you have to be real about it. You can't do it as a ploy. But if you're sincere and you say, look, the content is true, so therefore, I'm sorry, I don't want you to make you feel like that. I don't mean to be selfish, and I want to change. So that brings on growth. Also, if you say nothing about how it was said to you, what's going to happen is within four to six hours, maybe at most the next day, your spouse is going to come to you and say, you know what, by the way, I'm sorry that I said it like that. I just got so fed up with you being late all the time, but that didn't give me the right to yell at you, and I shouldn't have. An apology that comes from within, instead of my saying, you can't talk to me like that, you shouldn't talk to me like that, you don't have the right to talk to me like that, Okay, I'm sorry. That doesn't mean as much as if I say nothing and I wait and I'm vulnerable. I have the courage to take the ownership of what I did wrong. And then the other person says, by the way, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have lost it on you like that. That means a whole lot more. And then you have the, the time that you can take to have that growth. When does that happen? At the family meeting. So you can discuss and say, hey, by the way, I would really appreciate if you could work on not being late anymore. You know, it, it doesn't feel good for, to cause me to not go where I, where I want to go on time. So that's commandment, uh, commandment number six. It's not what, always what you say, but it's also how you say it. Commandment number seven is never underestimate the power of an apology. So you know, there's some people that have a natural inclination to be okay apologizing. And something happens right away that the first person to say, you know, I'm sorry about that. Sometimes people apologize, like there's people like that, they apologize too much. Oh, yeah, you know, it's not your fault. There's nothing to apologize for, right? Then there's people, for whatever reason, whether it's their genetic makeup or the, the, the way the environment that they grew up in, where it's, it's really, really difficult for them to apologize. And they, they just don't want to do it. And everyone here probably knows someone like that, that they, they don't usually say sorry. And if they say sorry, you know it, it took a lot for them to do it, right? So why is that difficult? Again, it takes courage and vulnerability. If I say I'm sorry, I was wrong, that means I'm not perfect. And if I'm not perfect, then maybe the other person won't love me the way that they love me because, you know, that person wants someone, someone perfect, or maybe I think I should be perfect. And really, no one's perfect. But then you think to yourself, but then there's, there's those arguments, there's those disagreements that happen where I'm right. Like, I'm not always right. But then sometimes I have conversations where I know I'm right. And the conversation has escalated to a place where maybe it's not being as conducive as I would like it to be. 
Maybe I've said some things that probably weren't as nice. My spouse said some things that maybe could have been said nicer. But at the end of the day, like this argument right now, I'm completely right. So why would I apologize? I'll apologize, I'll apologize in the times when I'm wrong. But why would I apologize in the times when I'm right? It doesn't make sense. But it does make sense. You could apologize even when you know that you're right. You haven't done anything wrong. Because you can apologize if the other person has hurt feelings. Now, you have to make sure it's not a fake apology. And I also do this sometimes to my wife as a joke. I'll say to her, by the way, I'm sorry that you misunderstood what I said and that you got upset when you didn't have to. It's obviously a joke. Because that's not a real apology. A real apology would be, I'm really sorry that our conversation like, took a turn to where now I said some things that I, that's not the manner in which I would have wanted to say them to you. So I'm, I'm really sorry that I could see you're upset. Maybe we need to t- table this conversation and discuss it later, right? So again, so you can apologize even when you're not wrong because you're upset that the other person's upset. It also, by the way, it teaches ownership to kids. It's really, really important. If we want your kids to have the ability to apologize, they need to see you apologizing. It's very important that kids see that it's okay for Abba and Ima, Tati, Mommy, Daddy. It's okay for them to see that, you know what, sometimes my father makes a mistake with Mommy and he's not too proud to say, I'm sorry, for whatever it is. Now, I'm not saying children should be privy to every single conversation, but kids that never, ever see their parents who apologize to each other grow up with one thing, that either my parents are perfect and at some point they're going to figure out that their parents are not perfect or that my parents were too proud to say sorry. So when you make a mistake, you don't, you don't want to own it. So it's really important to learn how to own any type of mistake that you make. So that's number seven. Never underestimate the power of an apology. Commandment number eight. And this is probably one of the most important ones. This wasn't in any type of uh, specific order. But commandment number eight is one of my catchphrases that I love to say. That marriage is really about learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable that a large part of marriage is going to live within a contradiction. What does that mean? And that was part of the definition that I said in the beginning. You get married and you take a man and you take a woman who grew up in a very specific way with limited interactions to a certain extent and then they've dated, I don't know, maybe you know, they could have dated anywhere from a month to six months, okay, a year. The degree to which they knew each other before marriage is limited. And now you're going to tell them you should go be married and live together and have joy the rest of your life. And it's not really like that. A good portion of marriage is struggle and challenge and learning to live in harmony together, even though you're two different people, which means a large portion of marriage is learning to be comfortable when you're uncomfortable. There's two different types of support in life. There's conditional support and there's unconditional support. Conditional support is the type of support that we engage in on a regular basis with with almost everyone that we know. Conditional support involves some sort of level of reciprocity, meaning I support you and you support me. I do things for you and you do things for me. This is what a friendship is based on. In fact, if you've ever had a friend where you feel at some point it's like, I'm always calling them, they never call me, I'm always WhatsApping them, they never WhatsApp me, I ask how they're doing, they never ask how I'm doing, and uh, you know, we only ever get together if I'm making the phone call. At some point you feel like that relationship is lacking and usually that friendship tends to fizzle at some point because you can only be the giver for so long. You want to be the receiver as well. So it involves conditional support, even subconsciously. I don't think most people go into a friendship thinking, I'm only going to give conditional support. No. People go into a friendship thinking, I'm going to give this friendship my all. But our all usually involves conditional support. Then there's unconditional support, which is usually people think is reserved for children. 
Why is it reserved for children? Because the way that God orchestrated the world is that babies can't do anything. And they're super cute, which is on purpose. Because if they weren't, I'm not sure they would be taken care of. Because they're really difficult to raise children, right? So babies can't do anything. And so you have to offer your unconditional love, your unconditional support in order to raise them. They, can't, they have to feed them and change them and nurse them, help them fall asleep. But a person enters into a marriage and thinks to themselves, I'm marrying an adult. So if I'm marrying an adult, that means this person can do certain things on their own. So there has to be reciprocity. And that's wrong. Marriage is really not about equality, right? It's about equity, which means each person gets what they need, what they deserve at that point in the marriage, which changes over time. So it could be that maybe I'm the giver for my wife because she can't for some reason for three months, six months. It could be a year. There could be no end in sight. And maybe later in the marriage, I'm going to have certain stressors, whether it's my own, in my extended family, my job, whatever it is, certain things that are happening, and I'm going to need her to give me more support. But it's unconditional, meaning I'm not expecting anything in return, and I don't know when I'm going to get something in return. But because I have a strong foundation, I know that it's built on the fact that we love each other and there's a commitment to a partnership. So that's unconditional support. That also falls in line with, for instance, what if you're having a, a disagreement or an argument? And there's a difference between the two. A lot of people use the words interchangeably. Like, we had a disagreement, we had an argument. They're not the same. What is the difference between a disagreement and an argument? The difference is the intensity of your commitment to your point of view. That's what determines whether it's a disagreement or an argument. A disagreement, I'm only so committed to my point of view, and therefore I'm willing to not only listen, but hear you out. Because I'm willing to acknowledge that maybe there's a different way of doing things. And I'm willing to say, you know what, maybe I should change my, my point of view. Maybe there's something to what you're saying. An argument is about, I will explain to you 50 different ways why it has to be my way. Because the only reason you're arguing is because you don't really understand it yet. But once I explain it to you in, in a way that you can understand, then you'll agree with me. Right? Sometimes I say to my wife, you know, I agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. So... The point is, you can have a disagreement, you can have an argument. But what about if it's late at night? Like some therapists, some counselors, or some books, if you read, it'll say, you should never go to sleep when you've had an argument. Like you should step and make sure that it's finished before you go to sleep. And that's absolutely ridiculous, because all you're going to do is be a walking zombie the next day. If you're young and you're, you're not married, so you can stay up late at night having a deep, meaningful conversation with someone on a specific topic, and you can work out all the kinks and your difference of opinions, that's fine. But when you're married, you have kids, you have a job, and you have responsibilities, you can't do that. So what do you do It's 12.30, and you are in the middle of an argument? It means that it's very intense, there's commitment to your points of view, and, and maybe you've said some things in a way that was not necessarily negative, but not the most appropriate. Like you wouldn't do it again had you had the chance. You would have explained it differently. What do you do? So you put it in the parking lot. Parking lot is an excellent tool that every marriage, every person has to have. What is a parking lot? What does that mean? So you go shopping at Oshrod, for instance, and let's say you have a car. If you don't have a car, pretend that you do for, argument, uh, for argument's sake. You go to Oshrod, you park your car, you go inside. You're shopping for two hours. If it's a Thursday night, maybe for <coughs> three hours because of the lines. You come outside, your car's still there. Are you thinking about your car the entire time you were shopping? Not at all. You left it, you're doing your shopping, getting everything you need. You know the car's going to be there when you need it. And you come back outside and you get in the car. When you have an argument with your spouse or something happens that you don't like, that's bothering you, that's frustrating you, you need to put it in the parking lot. That means it's on Sunday. This happened at 1230 at night. We have to stop this discussion. 
I'm going to put in the parking lot and I'm going to act as if it didn't happen and not let it bother me, which means I'm not going to give my spouse the silent treatment. I'm not going to shift responsibilities. I'm not going to purposely not do something that I said I would, or I'm not going to make her a coffee or do something extra nice because I'm upset and I'm hurt. You need to put that in the parking lot and act as if. But I'm not saying act as if in terms of pretending because you have a commitment to a partnership, then you're not really acting. Because if you have a strong foundation and you've been having your family meetings, then you know that at the core of your relationship is love. So if you love each other, you can know that it's also okay to argue sometimes. But sometimes you can't finish the argument. So let's say it's on Sunday and it's 1230 at night and you're having this intense argument. And now it's like, listen, I have to go to bed. I have a client in the morning. I have work in the morning. I'm traveling to Shalim in the morning at 7 a.m. I have to be able to, I have to be alert. So if your family meeting is every Thursday at 9 o'clock, you say, you know what? This is the type of discussion. Like, unfortunately, it's decompensated to a place where we're not being effective. We're not being efficient. Let's table this. That's on Sunday. Let's table this for Thursday at 9 o'clock. This is the perfect thing for us to discuss at our family meeting. So very important, develop a parking lot. Learn to be comfortable being because it's, it's uncomfortable to walk around from Sunday to Thursday with this very important matter that's upsetting me, right? And sometimes you see someone, you can see on their face that they're perturbed by something, right? But you should work hard that in your marriage, you should be able to walk around and it shouldn't perturb you. It's not easy. Someone that says, I can do it no problem, I don't believe them. It's very difficult to walk around and, and think to yourself, I'm not going to let this bother me. Why is that? Because your spouse is more than a best friend, not to cheapen the relationship. And therefore, if something happened, they said something to you, it might cut deeper, it might hurt more. At the same time, the investment that you have is infinitely greater. So therefore, you can work very hard within yourself to say, I'm going to live within a contradiction. And I'm going to learn to be completely comfortable being uncomfortable. So that was number eight. What, what if the other person, though, is feeling hurt, and you're going around for three days, and your spouse hurt for three days, isn't that gonna... Right. So ideally, if you're having family meetings, this is something you're working on together. If the other person says, what I would say is like this, I would say to my spouse, it's Sunday, this is obviously a discussion, it's very intense, at this point we're not going anywhere, what if we table this for our, for our family meeting on Thursday? Uh, it's a great idea, but I can't, I can't. I'll tell you what, what you said to me, it's very painful, it's very hurtful, and I'd rather discuss it tomorrow. Okay, so let's discuss it tomorrow at 9.30 when the kids go to sleep. Let's discuss it tomorrow. Now, I can't do this for her, but she needs to work on herself very hard as well that the rest of the day we should be able to treat each other like husband and wife. That's really the specialness of a husband-wife relationship. You don't have to do that with anyone else. Everyone else, you don't have to do that. You could say bye-bye. You can cut them off from your life. You could say, you really hurt me. I don't want to speak to you. That's not the way the husband-wife relationship is supposed to be. A husband-wife relationship is supposed to be on such an intimate level that you can hurt the other person and still love them all the same. And be in the same room with them. Most people, if they hurt you in that way, I would say, I don't want to be in the room with you right now. I can't even look at you right now because what you said was so hurtful. To your spouse, you say, you only said that because you're so committed to our relationship. You want me to be my best self. You want you to be your best self. We're both not sure where to move. This conversation became very intense. You want to move to Pittsburgh. I want to move to Eretz Yisrael. And we both want the same thing. We both want the best life for ourselves. So because we have that commonality, let's table this. Let's go to sleep at peace. So when they say, like, don't go to sleep when you had an argument, no, it's okay to go to sleep in the middle of an argument. But if you have a real harmonious relationship, then you don't have to live in that argument because it's not, that's not your whole relationship. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's very nice. Thank you. Okay. 
So that's number eight. Learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Commandment number nine, recognize changing ideals. What does that mean? I don't mean ideals in like ethics. What I mean is, what is the ideal situation at different phases of life? So for instance, we all have preferences. Now, this kind of connects to what I discussed before about having a shared, creating a shared reality based on sharing your expectations. So I might have an expectation that uh, we go out to dinner every month, right? What is the ideal amount? Should we go once a week? Should we go once a month? I'm going to give you an example of how ideals have to change. What is good enough and what is ideal has to change in a marriage and has to be fluid. Has to be? Fluid. So I don't know how it happened, but the, the nature of things in, in our marriage is that my wife does the laundry and I usually fold it or we fold it together and then it gets put away. That's how it's always been. And for the first few years of our marriage, my wife would do the laundry, it would get folded and I'd put it away and that was it. And I don't know why it took me so long to recognize it. At some point, we had, like, uh, we had two kids at the time, and I woke up one morning, and I'm like, there's this massive pile of clean laundry in our bedroom. I wasn't upset, but I was wondering, like, why is that? Like, what changed? How come it used to be different? So I said to my wife, Etty, why is it that it used to be that you did the laundry, we folded it, and we put it away, and now there's, like, this pile of clean clothes in our room? Why is that? And she said, it's really easy. So before we had kids, we had much more time. And so the ideal, and what was good enough was, the clothes gets washed, gets folded, gets put away. Now we have two kids. You're doing your master's. I'm doing my master's. We, we, we just bought a house. We're really busy. So right now, this is good enough. Good enough is that our kids always have clean clothes. It doesn't always get put away. I was like, okay, that makes sense. If you don't have a conversation about what has changed in the marriage, then that leads to frustration. Like you, can get, you end up getting upset. Why have things changed? What's considered good enough? And when do you have that conversation? And I can't emphasize this enough, this enough. That's why I keep coming back to it. And I want to say it's never too late to, to, to start. A couple said to me, but we've been married 18 years. It doesn't make sense. We should start having family meetings. Just the opposite. It makes sense you should start having family meetings because you've been married 18 years and you never take the time to discuss the marriage. Who's going to tell you if you're a good husband? Other people. Other people tell you you're a good husband. It doesn't mean anything. They, they see from the outside. They see the peripheral. They see you do some things that in public makes you a good husband. Who could really tell you is your wife. So at a family meeting, you say, by the way, I noticed this has changed. What is good enough in this realm of our life? What is good enough for Shabbos? Oh, good enough is right now we're not having Shabbos guests because we're just too busy. Okay. What is good enough in terms of, you know, our kids doing their homework? What is good enough in terms of, you know, buying new things? What is good enough? You have a discussion about what's good enough and you never feel like you're lacking because you understand what is good enough. So commandment number nine is recognize changing ideals. Commandment number 10, the last one, is just like everything else in life, marriage is hashkacha pratis. Marriage is? pratis. Divine providence. Marriage is ordained by the creator of the universe. And I think it's very easy to lose that. People walk around and we see hashkacha pratis in the world, something happens, we don't always see it, we sometimes see it, but we think to ourselves, this, gamzu tova, this happened for a reason. The creator of the universe, the Abishur, made this happen for me. But my marriage is something else. I can't believe my wife did this. I can't believe my husband did this. And we have to remind ourselves that God is the one who chose our spouse for us. And in Shevet Bracha number two, which is my favorite Shevet Bracha, a lot of people like the last one because the last one is what you, know, you sing and then there's the chorus and people like the last Shevet Bracha. I like number two. Why do I like number two? Because what does number two say? That God created everything for his glory. 
What does it mean God created everything for his glory? And why are we saying that under the chuppah? We are letting the couple know from day one that there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. There's going to be wonderful times and there's going to be challenges because you're two different people. And every step of the way, every experience you have where you're, where you're learning to love what the other person loves, you're learning to have changing preferences, you're going to create a shared reality. All these things, you're learning to, you're learning to hear and not just listen. Everything that is involved in all of that is for God's glory. And when we remind ourselves that every single thing that happens, not just in like the more global sense, but in my own home, with my spouse, everything that happens is for his glory, then it reminds me, you know what, this, this situation that happened that wasn't ideal, I can learn from it. And I can honor God by making my relationship the best relationship that I can be. So it brings me back to the definition that I started from the beginning, that marriage is a commitment to a partnership, to journey through life, to achieve the mission that God has set before you. And you can't expect that achieving one's mission is easy. In fact, we all know it's difficult. And the most rewarding experiences in life are never the ones that were accomplished easily. So that's the Ten Commandments. What I want to do now quickly, and then if there's any questions, you know, I actually think that usually the, the best learning comes from questions and shared dialogue. But I want to quickly just, I'm going to repeat each of the commandments and give you one line as a takeaway. So number one was create a shared reality. So be clear about your expectations. And if you're unsure, then clarify. Having a family meeting each week is incredibly helpful in becoming the best husband and the best wife that you can be. Never think to yourself, like, it's awkward, it's been too long, we never started it. If anyone wants, you can contact me. I actually have a document that I created that people to use at a family meeting with a set of questions that you ask your spouse. I highly recommend it. I'm happy to share it to anyone that wants. Number two is don't just be a spouse, be a best friend. Recognize that your role as a spouse is to support as well as cultivate and help that person, as I like to say, step into yourself. So be best friends, but don't cheapen the relationship. Commandment number three is learn to love what your spouse loves. Everyone likes to engage in activities that they enjoy. It's even more enjoyable to do those things with the person that means the most to you in the world, even if you don't like it. So take the time to learn to love things that you never thought that you would, because you also grow as a person. Number four, learn to be selfless, but not less of yourself. That means balancing being selfless and supporting your spouse to become the best version of themselves while still finding time to be your authentic self. Commandment number five was don't just listen but hear. So don't do what you think your spouse wants based on your own wants and needs. Instead, take the time to understand, reframe, and make sure that it's clear and hear between the lines. Number six, it's not what you say but how you say it. So if your spouse tells you something in a way that's less desirable, remember, you can agree with the content even if the approach wasn't ideal. Speak kindly and give feedback instead of criticism. Number seven was never underestimate the power of an apology. So it's very important to own your mistakes. The first step towards change is to admit when you're wrong. And even if you feel you were right, you can apologize sincerely. It just takes practice. Because the first time you do it, it feels uncomfortable. Um, number eight, learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. It's my personal favorite. Develop a parking lot. Use it often. The more you use it, the better you'll get at it. It's a muscle to use a parking lot, to be able to hold something in your mind. Like, you know, we say in the six remembrances, to remember, to re forget, to remember. Like, you, you can train yourself to do that. Like, as a therapist, I train myself to forget things that people tell me, especially if I'm, let's say, I'm working with a friend who happens to also be a client. I forget everything they say outside of the session. You can train your mind to do those unbelievable things. Being in love but having someone, something on our mind isn't a contradiction if you learn how to handle it. Uh, number nine, recognizing changing ideals. So our priorities change, and we have to be fluid in our approach. Ask and clarify with your spouse if you aren't sure what the current ideal is, what's good enough. 
And number 10, just like everything else in life, marriage is hashkacha pratis. So that means God picked your spouse for you. And then I'll close with this. The greatest blessing, the greatest bracha you could ever give to anyone, if you're at a simcha, you're at a kiddush, and you want to give someone a bracha, someone says, give me a bracha, I'm going to tell you what the greatest bracha you could ever give is. You should say to that person, I give you a blessing that you should become the person that God intended you to be. There's literally no more powerful bracha than that. You should become the person that God intended you to be. You have to recognize that as a spouse, you are integral to that blessing coming to fruition. And so what's really important is to think about that I can do that for my spouse and my spouse can do that for me. How powerful is that? And then that's, that's, uh, that's the end of the Ten Commandments. If anyone has any questions, I'm more than happy to answer or discuss anything. But if not, that's okay too. If you want to ask me something afterwards and not ask me that's okay. Do you have any... Um Questions that people sometimes ask that you're thinking, so we'll ask that you could talk about. Um, sometimes people ask about family meetings, but I, I spoke about it and emphasized it quite a bit. But a lot of people think you know, it's awkward, it's weird, when should we do it, or what should we say? And well, what if you have a weekly date? Does that not be like interchangeable? So there's three different things, and they're, they're, they're really different. They're not interchangeable at all, and it's very important that you don't confuse them. So there's spending time together on a date, which is I classify as romantic time. That means you're cultivating connection. So when you go on a date, a date is never watching a movie. If people went to watching movies, a date is not um, um, listening to a class. A date has to be time when you're spent talking and cultivating connection. That means bringing closeness to each other. And it should be in some sort of romantic level, right? Meaning like you're, you're spending time, you're sharing with each other. If someone's confused how to do that, I have a whole list of activities that people can do in order to connect with each other. For instance, sharing information that, for instance, you could be married 18 years, and, and for sh- I'm married 18 years. There are things I don't know about my wife's childhood. So that's romantic. If we spend time together, I say, you know, tell me about a friendship that you had that didn't end well. Now, on the one hand, you're like, why would I ask that question? I ask that question because there's a little bit of pain. There's an element of pain that she'll have to share with me, which means I'm going to understand her better, which means, there's, which means there's vulnerability and there's connection. There's intimacy in that. There's emotional intimacy. So that's a date. That's very important. Going out to dinner, having conversations, real conversations. You don't discuss the kids. You don't discuss school. You don't discuss doctors. None of that on a date. Then there's lighthearted fun. Completely separate than romantic time. Lighthearted fun is like, I don't know if you know what a TED Talk is. Watching a TED Talk, you know, watching if you're into comedy, watching a comedian. It could could be watching a video if you're into that. It's doing something that's lighthearted that brings joy to both of you. It doesn't cultivate connection. Don't think to yourself if you're watching something and sharing space. Sharing space is different than participation. Sharing space in a comfortable way that's lighthearted is really important and establishes and, and it's a good foundation for the relationship. But it's not cultivating romantic connection. It's not bringing emotional intimacy. But it's equally important. And then you have a family meeting. A family meeting is when I tell you, you know, these are the things that I really, really like that you do. Here's something that if you were willing to change... I'd like to see done differently. And then I might comment on something that you've been working on. Now you're never going to be working on more than one or two things at most because it's really difficult to change. We have to acknowledge that. If I got married at 25 years old, which I did, like I had 25 years of baggage that I brought with me. Everyone brings a suitcase. So acknowledge that. When you get married, it's good to acknowledge. I have a suitcase. It's filled with all these pet peeves and weird things about me. And it's also filled with lots of wonderful things. And I'm bringing it with me. And some of the things that are coming out of that suitcase, you're not going to like. And I'm willing to change those things, but it's going to take time. So at a family meeting, you discuss those things, and you want to sandwich it. So you say something positive, something that you'd like to see change, and then you make a comment. And by the way, 
I noticed you've really been working on not interrupting me. I've noticed a big change, and it makes me feel really good. But you never substitute one for the other. Three different things. Does that answer your question? It does. I just feel like usually our dates are a mixture of the three. Right. A lot of people, it's an issue of the three. You have to, like, marriage takes a pointed, focused effort. So when we, when we let things happen incidentally, then they never happen the way we want. When, like, when going on a date and the cultivating of connection is a bit yavid, like it's an afterthought, then it doesn't happen. It has to be al It has to be like, we're going on a date and, and, and you should plan it well. Meaning like, if I'm going on a date with my wife, it's not just we're going out to dinner. We're going out to dinner and I want to discuss this topic. I want to ask you this important question. And I mean, I'm, I'm, there's lots of activities that you can do that cultivate connection. That's what you want to do on a date. What happens is the reason why, I, I'm going to guess, that the reason why you do that is you only have so much time together. So therefore, for most couples, it ends up morphing into like, we have this two hours together. Let's also talk about the kids. Let's also talk about the neurologist appointment that happened last week. Let's talk about the schooling for this one child that we're not so happy with. Let's talk about whether our apartment's big enough. And like, how much of the conversation is like, hey, tell me about you. We end up not doing that because we, we have so little time. But My then, date's usually three to five hours. Okay, so that's three to five hours that you can have for, for cultivating emotional intimacy and set aside different time to have the family meeting. It almost feels like the most important commandment, you can say that, is the family. Which basically, if you follow how you're saying to do it, it really opens up and does bring closeness. 100%. Yeah? 100%. Because, you know, there's so many uh, conditions in life. Sometimes I show work ends at 8, 9 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Hundred percent. So you said you said it perfectly. In fact, um, I teach a marriage course to couples that are either going to get married, have been married. I've also taught to people that have married twenty three years. It's, it's a specific. It's five classes. That's a course, and then the, as part of the package, they get a free session, free follow up session. So, you know, sometimes it's three months, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's two years. Eventually, I get a call. We'd like to use our free session. Okay, great. We start off. First thing I ask them before they say anything: Have you been having weekly meetings? No, we haven't. So now I already have in my mind. I already know some of the things because of the question they asked during the classes. I know right away, so much of it could prevent it if they had been speaking with each other. So now they, have, they come to me and I'm, I'm happy to support them. But if we're open our communication, we're sharing with our spouse on a regular basis, what am I doing as a husband that you love? What, are, what am I doing as a wife that you love? What could I do better? What can't I change? So like, let's say your wife says to you, you know, Shlomo, I want you to come home at five o'clock every day. That, that might not be possible, but at least you have a discussion about it. You have an open communication. So, okay, what is the ideal situation? What are our expectations? And now you've just created a shared reality that I can't be home at eight, but these are other things that can be done. That's a great question. So I, I think that when, you know, a lot of people ask me when they find out that I'm a marriage therapist, they'll always say to me, so what is the most important thing? Like, what, is, what, are, what do you notice the most and what is the greatest advice you can give? So it's twofold, actually. Um, I always say that the most simple and most complex advice I could give, and if people followed this, I'd be out of a job because no one would ever need me. 
goes like this. If there's something that your spouse likes, you should do it and do a lot of it. And if there's something that your spouse doesn't like, then don't do it at all. It's that simple. That's marriage wrapped up with a, tight, with a nice little bow. What does that really mean? It means I'm willing to change myself and I'm not requiring you to change. Because if there's something my spouse likes, I'm going to do it whether I like it or not and do a lot of it. And if there's something my spouse doesn't like, I'm not going to do it, which is going to require me to change. So really the principle is it's a balance of willingness to change and acceptance of who the other person is. And I think if each person goes into the marriage, you have to recognize that who you're standing of, under the chuppah with, under the chuppah with, that's who you married. In other words, the person doesn't have to say, I'm willing to change. A person in a healthy relationship is willing to change. But if a person dug in their heels and said, this is who I am, that's who you married. You are under the chuppah. So you accept the other person as they are right now. But you should be willing to change. Because you want your spouse to be happy. If each person goes in with that perspective, well then really what's happening is both people are willing to change. But then again, you have to recognize that there's an ebb and flow to marriage, like anything else. And it could be at certain points, it's easier for me to change certain things than it is for my wife. And there are certain things that happen in life, a, a big move, the sale of a house, God forbid, a death in the family, the marriage of, of a loved one. These are things that happen that when that happens, everything surrounded becomes kind of like a whirlpool. And it becomes more difficult for that person to change in some respect. So you have to be accepting of that. So there's a, there's a healthy balance. But if you go in with the right perspective of, I'm willing to do my part to make the other person happy, and anything that they're unhappy with, I won't do, that means you're taking the responsibility for yourself that you're willing to change. And you're not going to require them to. Which means what? That's unconditional support. If there's no other questions, then, then we'll stop here. Good. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed today's recording. Please take a moment to leave a rating or a review to help others find the podcast. We welcome you to support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. For feedback, please email podcast at mikvah.org. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.